Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. After what some have called the angriest week in the federal government's relations with the Chinese government, who do we turn to to make sense of what might come next in what appears to be a deepening trade and diplomatic spat with Australia's largest trading partner? Well, author, Guardian columnist and former Triple R breakfaster, Dr Jeff Sparrow, of course, um, looming tensions and a trade war with a superpower demands fresh fresh thinking and... Uh, that's why you're there, Jeff. Good morning. <laughs> hey, Kaya. Well, what an introduction. How are you guys going? Yeah, going Good. pretty well. Um, yeah, and nothing like a superpower um, discussion to involve you. I know that you've been paying close attention to this, Jeff. I guess um, maybe share what you characterise as the uh, relationship between the Chinese and Australian governments right now. Yeah, look, as we get to the end of 2020, there's a lot of people talking about what a terrible year it's been and how much they're looking forward to it being to it being over. But to be honest, I think the development of uh, tensions with China are really pointing to some bad years to come and need to be taken tremendously serious, seriously. I mean, I think with this issue in, in particular, one of the things that's striking about it was the... Um, the impetus for this particular blow-up, which came out of the Brereton report, of course. So, you know, we have this extraordinary report of 39 civilians being murdered, allegedly, by the AS in Afghanistan. And somehow, after a response by a low-level spokesperson from the Chinese Foreign Ministry, the Australian media pivots from talking about these atrocities to instead talking um, about problems with China. And it's symptomatic of the increasingly fraught relationship between Australia and China, a relationship that I think has a really dangerous dynamic to it in a whole series of ways. And, I mean, what do you make of the way that Morrison responded to that image coming out? Because, you know, a lot of um, sort of people in the know and, and China scholars and, and that sort of thing talk about the idea of um, sort of handling the relationship with a lot of sensitivity and sort of being very careful about the public statements you make. And, you know, Kevin Rudd's talked about sort of doing things behind the scenes rather than coming out with these sorts of bullish, quite sort of, um, you know, very strong responses to these sorts of actions. What do you make of... of how Morrison handled it. I thought the whole thing was was bizarre. I mean, so the the image was one created by a, a well-known um, internet uh, graphic artist. And I, just, just in passing, the discussion in the Australian media of this as a doctored image seemed to me to be utterly bizarre, like saying a cartoon was a fabricated image. Like, it was never supposed to be, uh, um, you know, an... an a, a, an accurate representation. It was it was a piece of art. That being said, what it actually showed was something that is in the relevant report. I mean, one of the allegations is that Australian um, SAS soldiers uh, sport two 14-year-old boys who they thought were Taliban sympathisers and then cut their throats and then disposed of their bodies in, in, in a river. So the umbrage that was immediately taken in the Australian media and by all political parties, Labor, Greens and the Liberals, seem to me to be have very little to do with what 
actually happened, if we're talking about what actually happened, the real discussion should have been about these atrocities in Afghanistan, but it was to do with these underlying tensions that have been uh, growing with China for, 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 for some time. So there's, there's all sorts of aspects now of the sort of tit-for-tat between Australia and China in terms of, you know, Australia banning foreign political donations or um, banning uh, the tech... Uh, the Chinese tech giant and, and various and various to and froes. But I think that what's really important is to see the kind of context in which, which this is taking place. So Australia, historically, as a European settler state implanted in the middle of Asia, has always been dependent on great power protection. So prior to 1942, that protection in the region came from Great Britain. In the, the, the middle of the Second World War, Australia pivots to the American alliance. And, you know, all that time, the relationship with America has been fundamental to Australian foreign policy. Now, however, we're in a situation where the United States is a declining power in Asia and China is an ascendant power in Asia. And so the situation is fundamentally unstable and that's what really was really behind this particular incident over over the tweet this ongoing long-term clash between um, two nations that are really important to Australia and, and that's why I think it's so dangerous because it's such an unstable situation. Yeah, and um, I, I guess I can be um, accused of simplifying things too much sometimes, Jeff. But I wonder—I mean, there are arguments around that that we need China more than China needs us, sort of thing. And I, I suppose I'd say we and us—you know—I'd rather say the Australian government and the Chinese government because it's—is it—is it about the people in China and Australia? Do you think? No, I think the people on both sides of this are you know, being taken along by, you know, uh, powerful interests. So in terms of Chinese trade with Australia, China now accounts for about 35% of Australian trade. Australian trade and is particularly dominant in certain areas. So, you know, the, the resources sector, but also higher education. Um, Australian Uni's got about $7 billion from, from, from Chinese students. So there are certain sectors of Australian big business who really want a closer relationship um, with with China and aren't concerned the slightest about human rights or, or anything like that. There's money to be made in, in, in dealing with China. But the great majority of Australian politicians and Australian business leaders are much more concerned about the security aspects because, of course, I mean, that, that, that's why the importance of Afghanistan as a sort of instigating incident is so ironic. Why was Australia in Afghanistan for, 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 for so long? I mean, Michelle Grattan um, said somewhere uh, uh, in the course of the war um, about 10 years ago that, look, we, we all know that this war is unwinnable. The reason we're there is we need this strategic alliance with the United States, and this is a down payment. On, on the war. So that's the prevailing sentiment within Australia. It's just that, you know, the American economy is in a long-term structural um, decline and the Chinese economy is still growing very, very strongly. At the same time, the Americans 
have a massive military superiority over China. And again, I think that, that, that sort of highlights the dangerousness of the situation that we're in now, because historically, when you have a great power with a declining economic capability, but an overwhelming military advantage, there's a real temptation to substitute um, military dominance for waning economic power. And what really worries me now is I kind of wonder what the end game of these rising tensions will be, where any of the politicians think this is going to end and whether they have a way of diffusing these tensions. She recognised that voice. It is Jeff Sparrow, ex-breakfaster and resident brainiac here at Triple R, speaking about the escalating tensions between Australia and China. And uh, what do you make of of what the sort of um, you know next four years, for example, might hold as um, you know presumably <laughs> Biden um, uh, becomes president, and there's you know this talk of uh, the US kind of um, you know going back to sort of multilateral sort of engagements in the region and and. Advancing a sort of stability based on a sort of pre-Trump sort of era. How do you think Australia will sort of respond to that? I mean, will there be a sort of doubling down on the US-Australia alliance as some kind of attempt to, I don't know, curb China's influence or um, reinstate the sort of ground that we've made for ourselves at the moment? Yeah, that's a really interesting um, question, isn't it? In some respects, I think that the reason why we're seeing these tensions now is that um, America's in this strange kind of limbo in between the Biden, the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Now, Trump had been very stridently anti-China, but at the same time had a kind of isolationist orientation and even at some level had won the election, sort of pledging no more foreign wars and certainly had withdrawn, as you say, from, from various international um, agreements. I think the Australian government is very worried about the, the position that the, that the Biden administration will take. As you say, Biden's orientation is far more multilateral and it's one I think we can ex- expect him to have much more an orientation in trying to isolate China through... Um, diplomacy and various agreements. At the same time, of course, uh, Biden was one of the key architects of the Iraq war. Mm. And, um, you know, he, he is already, all the signs are that he's surrounding himself with the same kind of people. And if you think about the Iraq war, one of the underlying justifications behind the Iraq war was sending a signal to China of, of the, that America still had a military um, capability. So I don't think there's any sense that the American hostility or, or the tension, because it's coming from both sides between America and China, will diminish under Biden. I think it will intensify. But as you suggest, I think it will play out in a different kind of way. And, of course, within Australia, the situation's kind of complicated um, by a number of other factors. On the one hand, a lot of Australians do have legitimate and real concerns about human rights in, in, in China, both the persecution of the Uyghurs, but also, you know, the suppression of the Hong Kong protests and so on. But at the same time, there's also a long-standing history of anti-Chinese racism. So we saw, we saw, saw Pauline Hanson injecting herself into this... Um, a controversy because, you know, it, 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 it's, it's utterly in her wheelhouse. So there's a whole series of interlocking tensions which make this whole debate so 
so unstable and so difficult to predict where it will end. Within China itself, of course, um, nationalism is now a tremendously important uh, way for the Chinese Communist Party to, to, to maintain its, its dominance in the country. And so it's very hard to see how the Chinese government will back down from the dispute as, as well. And, of course, a war between the United States and China would be unthinkable to superpowers possessing nuclear weapons. And I'm not suggesting that this is something, you know, know, that it's in the immediate offing. Nevertheless, as I say, I think there's a very dangerous dynamic and we'd be wise to pay considerable attention to how it develops. Yeah, I mean, in the time we've got with you left, Jeff, um, can you reflect a little bit on the Chinese Communist Party? Because, I mean, I'm reading in the Australian press um, words like, you know, Leninism and, and, and the like. I mean, how do you see the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's very, much, there's very much left of any kind of uh, commitment to... To, to socialism other than in a very rhetorical way within China. But the, the, the Communist Party has managed to maintain its, its dictatorship over China because it's delivered tremendous uh, economic prosperity, although the rate of that prosperity, the rate of economic growth has been declining in, 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 in recent years. And there's a real problem for, for the Communist Party as to how that stability might be um, maintained. And, and they've been very ruthless in suppressing um, industrial unrest and any kind of, uh, of protest. And, of course, nationalism is a traditional way of holding uh, a, a country together, particularly in places like China, where you think that um, it, it's a very... Um, It's a country with a very long history, but also a recent history of colonial um, oppression. And there's a sense within China that China is once more taking its legitimate place in the world, and particularly in the region. It's not that difficult for the Communist Party to fan opposition to a tremendous American presence in the Asia-Pacific, which, of course, is, you know, thousands of kilometres away from the United States. And it's very easy for the Chinese people to see, well, to, 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 to see this as our territory, you know, not the Americans. And, again, I, I, I do kind of wonder as to how the um, Chinese leaders would be able to step back from a confrontation without, without wondering whether by doing so they risk their um, political legitimacy within China itself. So there's sort of a dynamic where neither side can afford to back down, and yet the current situation where the Americans maintain this sort of strategic dominance over the region, even as their economic power continues to decline, seems to be untenable as well. So how it develops, um, who knows? But um, I really do think it's one of the stories to watch as um, 2021 promises to be even more of a hell year than 2020. <laughs> well, that's a good point to end on, isn't it, Jeff? We'll look forward to, um, to seeing what happens and have a great old time as we, um, yeah, as we watch Mouths Agape and see how that, that story unfolds. <laughs>
Thanks so much for, for having a chat to us today. It's always great to have you back on Triple R and um, enjoy the summer and hope to, to catch up with you very soon. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Bye, Jeff. Jeff Sparrow, author, former breakfaster, uh, and you can catch his columns. I think they're fortnightly in The Guardian, Australia. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. It's been a year since the federal government repealed the Medivac law. The original legislation, you might remember, was passed against the government's wishes in March 2019 as crossbenchers and the opposition voted to allow medical practitioners to order the transfer of asylum seekers from Nauru and Papua New Guinea to the Australian mainland for medical treatment. Although short-lived, the provision saw over 180 asylum seekers transferred to Australia for health reasons. Now, though, 12 months since the law's repeal, many asylum seekers remain in detention, some of them in hotels, with no certainty as to their release. The anniversary also comes as the High Court ruled uh, last week that asylum seekers are able to bring actions in the state courts and federal court relating to their treatment and the conditions of their detainment in Australian-run detention facilities. To talk about these issues and the broader plight of refugees as 2020 draws to a close, we're joined by Executive Director of Refugee Legal, David Mann. Great to have you back on the show, David. Oh, great to be back. Yeah, um, uh, hope you're well. We are indeed. Hope you're well too. Um, so what is the status of those asylum seekers who were brought here under the Medivac law? <coughs> yeah, well, um, the status is, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, the um, yeah, almost 200 people were evacuated to Australia. Um, in fact, more than that in the end, but uh, and we were deeply involved in that and you know, fought tirelessly with others to... Um, to then save the Medivac laws from repeal and ultimately in vain. But the, what, what's happened since is um, that uh, you know many of these that these men, in fact, you know, have having been you know, critically ill and evacuated from open air prisons, effectively in the Ruru and TNG, they've been um, locked up uh, in hotels in the suburbs of Melbourne and Brisbane. So you know, I mean, just down the road from where we're both, um, you know, where we're both speaking. Uh, there are people who've been uh, are indefinitely detained who are brought back for critical medical treatment and they're under guard and under conditions that are taking a terrible toll on their well-being cycle and health psychological and physical and um, and I can just say you know from from all of the um, all of the evidence and all of our um, you know discussions with them it, it's taking a uh, it's compounding the severity of the medical conditions that they are brought here to be treated you know and um, uh, have been stripped. These are these are also men. I think it's worth remembering. These are men who uh, were stripped of their freedom uh, many years ago. Yeah, you know, really, it, it's going on to eight years now. Um, to they've been stripped of their freedom, having sought safety in Australia. And uh, can I just say, you know, that there are some some of the circumstances just I think capture it. You know, some some of the things that have been said by some of these men. And there's uh, a man, Ramati, who. Uh, you know, was from his hotel balcony, from his from his window, looking at shops and restaurants, etc., out, out below, but can't 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 leave. And and said recently, I see everything, but I have no chance to touch it. You know, it's that sort of predicament. 
Yeah, and I mean, you referred to just down the road from here at Triple R, you talking about, you know, Bell Street Preston, there's people outside hotel there, you know, really holding vigil, I guess, holding up signs to those yeah. inside. Is that the kind of situation you're referring to there, Dave? Yeah, I am. Exactly that. That's right. And I think it's worth remembering, too, that, you know, when it comes to, you know, um, a life worth living and what it means to be a human being and to lead a, a, just a good life, um, liberty is central to it, as we know. I mean, we don't think about that every day. I mean, guess in lockdown in different circumstances and far less dire, I guess, but in lockdown, people have thought a bit more about liberty and um, how that can easily be taken for granted and how central it is <clears throat> to the way that we live and want to live. But these men are locked up indefinitely um, in, in the suburbs, you know, just down the road and uh, cannot, cannot come and go. And they're also, they hadn't been told how long it's going to go on and what their future fate is. And um, <clears throat> these are people who have been through terrible trauma in the past and uh, it's only deepening you know, their, their despair. And um, I think that one has to ask the question here too, why? You know, why, why is this seen as necessary um, to do this um, to, to people who... Uh, have sought our safety. Well, why there, why in, in, impose a second wave of suffering on them? Well, there have been some suggestions I've, I've read about, um, David, that, that, you know, one of the reasons the government could be stalling and also, you know, moving mm. these men around from facility to facility when they speak out is because of that, you know, loss on the floor of Parliament, which was highly embarrassing and that that's sort of a factor in, in why they're, they're sort of treating men in these ways. Do you sort of see much stock in, in that kind of um, perspective? Yeah, well, that's that, that's the sort of um, analysis that, uh, in part, this is a is an act of um, vindictiveness. Um, you know, having laws having been um, introduced last year, contrary to the government's um, expressed will, um, to, to which resulted in us being able to, together with others, to be able to help many men to be evacuated and women to be evacuated to Australia, uh, and then you know that that yeah, after the repeal, that it was yeah, you know, some would say this is an act of you know political. Yeah, um, vindictiveness and retribution even. Whether it is or not, I, yeah, I can't know exactly. Um, I guess people will speculate on that. But what I can say, I think this is central to it. And I have to say, that, you know, it's really... One thing that's really struck me recently is that people are so... So many people are so disturbed and shocked, and, and we should be, by, by this, this conduct of, of locking people up in this way, um, you, know, at, you know, at our doorstep, as, you know, sort of in the neighbourhood, um, uh, you know, let alone anywhere... I think that so many um, people have asked, continue to ask why, even people that, that know the issues well and have you know, really helped people for years and been interested in refugee issues. And I think what, what I think is important to, to, to look at here, whether it's vindictiveness or not, or, you know, is what it is, what we are seeing is um, the deterrence agenda, uh, an extreme form of deterrence policy where, uh, you know, the... The political logic of that policy, as we've seen for years, the political logic is brutal because what it really um, is about is not the people subject to it. It's got no regard to their dignity, no regard to their freedom, no regard to their well-being. Um, it's all about stopping others from coming here. Um, and so people are being used as human shields and become collateral damage because that's the purpose of the policy. It's effectively... The policy really proposes this. The more successful uh, the policy, um, the, the, the harsher the penalty, if you like, the more successful the policy will be. That, that's the logic of it. And I think that this is another example 
of the, the extreme form of deterrence uh, that we have seen in so many other ways, including, you know, in TPV policy of leaving people in a twilight world of limbo in our community as refugees and many other examples. Yeah. David Mann's with us. Um, he's with Refugee Legal and speaking about the broad situation facing refugees and those seeking asylum in our community. And uh, you said in one, um, a bit earlier, um, David, about you know uncertainty. And I guess mm. we've all had a, a taste of uncertainty this year, but we've also seen massive change that in... Within that, within uncertainty, we can make new policy decisions. We can change our approach and change the way we think and work together in ways that we haven't done before. Uh, has this kind of transferred, do you think, to the area of refugee and asylum seeker policy in Australia that we can change, that we could move away from uh, policies of deterrence as you as you explain them to something else? Look, I... I, I I think it's such an important point that you raise, and I think that the starting point for it, as you really were referring to, is that, you know, both here and globally, there's been a paradigm shift, a seismic shift in the way that we live and work um, due to uh, the pandemic. Uh, and in many respects, and I think this is very much part of uh, the way that we've lived here too, is that governments and, society and communities have responded accordingly. They've adapted, adjusted, and, you know, we've seen many many situations where, you know, there's been additional support provided um, uh, to people, um, et cetera. We have our arguments about whether it's adequate or not, but what I'm saying is there has been a shift, you know, including stimulus packages, et cetera, and additional benefits, job care, et cetera. But, and this is a big but, there have been here and globally some um, uh, exceptions, and they're very stark because they're limited and they're stark, and one of them is in the treatment of people seeking asylum and refugees, and I would add to that migrants. And what we've seen here is exceptionalism. Once again, what we've seen is a policy, uh, a determination to sort of almost a, against all odds, really, and against all good reason, um, even if that reason was purely not morally you know, sort of the moral element um, of common humanity, but even if it was just enlightened, you know, sort of self-interest, what we've seen is anything but that. What we've seen is this determination to continue to prosecute policies of exclusion and policies that are punitive. And uh, and so, you know, for example, it's notorious now, but um, we all know that you know, um, asylum seekers, um, temporary migrants, were completely excluded from stimulus um, packages of the federal government. Um, people were income support, no, no assistance with income support, so exclusion there. And this is the one that always I think I think of most, and that is um, first, and that is, despite um, the pandemic, there was still a refusal by the federal government to grant universal access to Medicare for people seeking asylum, and uh, it still to this day astonishes me that um, one could. But it gives you a sense of the depth of the exclusionary policies and deterrence. But, and sorry, and I think that the key here is, of course, that. Um, that really uh, the pandemic has in many ways compounded the vulnerabilities of so many people that we help and um, has just heightened the, the need for support, uh, legal and otherwise. Um, but, and getting to your point about change, I, I would also say this, that there has been, we have seen a remarkable, um, you know, remarkable effort by, by um, you know, uh, people across the community stepping up to help. Uh, people in need. And I've also, I think one thing that's really struck us, um, you know, is, you know, we've kept all of our services going um, remotely. Um, a phenomenal, mighty effort by 
um, staff and volunteers um, to, to work offline and do things differently to continue to provide the help. But one thing that's really struck, struck us too is just the extraordinary strength and courage and resilience of so many people that seek our help uh, in such difficult times, um, you know, uh, and uh, just just continuing to, um, you know, to... to seek support, but also just to, to keep strong and uh, as strong as possible in these circumstances and um, yeah, to pursue freedom. Um, and I, I would, But I would also say, too, that the community has been remarkable across the country. And one example, just in terms of, uh, in terms of, I think, hope, is that we've seen a boost in volunteer ranks. I mean, we've already got 550 volunteers and growing, but um, we've seen a boost around the country of people wanting to help. And because of the online nature, the off-site online nature of it, we've seen that's um, become even more possible for people. That's really um, interesting. Look, it's really interesting because mm. because I think, you know, one of the consequences as well of the pandemic has been that, that I think, you know, in a lot of cases, people have been inclined to look to their neighbours and look to those who need help because we've all got some yeah. taste of, of the struggle we've been faced with. So it is, you know, really heartening to hear that that sort of readiness of people to, to pitch in and help with the work that you do is, is absolutely happening. But what what about on the yeah. sort of legal avenues and so on? I mean, there was a decision mm. in the High Court last week around um, asylum seekers being able to bring actions in sort of um, lower courts relating to their treatment and, and conditions in Australian-run yeah. detention facilities. Was that a significant development? Look, it, yeah, look, it, it was sort of both yes and no. I mean, I think it, any, any High Court decision which is about access to um, really at its heart, I mean, it was a bit technical and complicated and... Um, uh, you know, for, for those that don't follow the law each day, but I think the, the heart of it was really a question of, you know, of, of what we call access to the courts, you mm. know, access to... And really, really, in a way, the decision was saying that um, that people that uh, want to bring um, a case sort of seek compensation for harm, uh, negligence, if you like, or harm uh, which occurred offshore, um, that is, asylum seekers and refugees, that they can bring those actions in state courts or federal courts, uh, that is, lower courts, than the High Court. And um, so really the, the, the government, the Commonwealth, was seeking to resist that um, and pointing to particular laws under the Migration Act, which are quite technical about, you know, basically about which court a case can be brought in. But mm. it's very important, and it's more than technical because um, the High Court is really generally a court of, it's of course the highest court in the land, uh, but it's also about, you know, largely about questions of law, about appeals and questions of law, whereas a lot of these issues that we're talking about will require a significant and um, significant amount of time to look very carefully at the evidence. And so it's important in terms of access to justice uh, as a decision. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. But it means that there's, um, in a way, at the moment as it stands, it, it seems to have been a decision to, you know, uh, to, to allow for more access to the courts um, at lower levels where usually these matters are looked at. Um, usually this is where really trials occur on these sorts of matters in lower courts. Can we look um, sort of globally for, for a sec, um, David? Yeah. And um, I mean, we know in Australia we, um, you know, have the so-called US deal. We know that New Zealand um, has a standing offer, I think, with Australia still to resettle um, refugees in, in that community. Um, but we also know around the world, you know, movement has been very much uh, restricted um, and despite, of course, people having to move due to conflict and so forth still now. Mm. Can you kind of paint a picture of, of where that's at with the various deals that the Australian government has or the offers on the table there and, and also the 
the movement of people globally at the moment and, and how that might have changed? That's kind of two questions in one, I guess. Yeah, well, I'd like to start with the global phenomenon, which is really, um, I mean, there's a, there was a, 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 a UN report uh, uh, earlier this year, which was um, a very compelling report about, you know, so we're all in this together, which is worth having a look at. Um, um, but really what it did is painted a picture, and there's been many, many sort of other examples of this, this picture of, um, across the globe of, of people seeking asylum and migrants, refugees, um, being particularly vulnerable. So, so really about, it, it, the heart of it was about how, it's, how the, the, the pandemic is, is compounding vulnerabilities and creating new vulnerabilities, and you know, whether it be through increased stigma and xenophobia, hate speech and racism, that kind of trend that we've seen growing um, pre-pandemic being exacerbated. But there's also, I mean, 167 countries closed their borders uh, during the pandemic, 57 uh, refused to um, allow access to people seeking asylum. Um, and um, people have been turned back in larger numbers, deported to danger. Many have been trapped also in, in cramped and overcrowded conditions, um, you know, without access to basic health care um, sanitation. So a really acute and increased risk of infection um, in those circumstances. And also many, many people excluded from mainstream social distancing policies or safety measures. And... Um, and so there's some of the trends and also um, people being denied medical treatment, being excluded from medical treatment. So, um, you know, some of the themes in a, you know, sort of albeit in a less stark way in Australia, I guess, um, but um, really um, that, that's the global picture. Um, there have been some exceptions to that, some rare exceptions. Portugal's a really interesting one where they did take a... They sort of regularised the status. They sort of made everyone... They gave everyone um, full status, um, people that were seeking asylum, um, which was an act really of enlightened self-interest, that kind of thing that I was referring to before. It makes good sense. I mean, you know, where, wherever it comes from, whether it's a sort of a... It's a, the impulse is moral or, or whether it's more pragmatic, uh, it made sense, but they're... That was an ex yeah, one of the exceptions to, to a global you know, sort of trend which went the other way and has been going the other way. But I think on the New Zealand issue um, the, and, and options for, for resettlement, I mean, the, the, the reality is that um, there are just... An, I think it's tremendously important that we just do, you know, um, acknowledge that there are still almost 300 people trapped offshore yeah, across PNG and Nauru um, who remain offshore. Um, you know, and uh, they're, they're people that weren't evacuated to Australia, of course, or, or resettled or returned to their home country. And the options are becoming you know, are becoming more and more limited. I mean, the US deal, people are still being resettled to the US, but I think that that's coming to a close as an option. Why is that taking Australia's... so long, David, just out of interest? Yeah, look, good question. Look, I, I, without knowing all of the details of it, it's a, it's a process which <laughs> it's always described to me as going faster than, than most resettlement processes. Mm. So resettlement takes a long time. Countries look very carefully at both whether or not someone's a refugee. So they re-look at the question of refugee status, even if the person was approved. So they re-look at that question and then they do security checks and all sorts of things that we don't get to see, of course, the detail of. Um, and the processes always take a long time. These are actually quicker, which is not quick, but they're quicker than, than often is the case. Um, but that deal is coming to a close. Um, and uh, really, we have to be looking at New Zealand. And, you know, recently in Senate Estimates, you know, the Secretary of Home Affairs um, and, uh, and a junior minister... Um, refer to the fact that it's under consideration. New, New Zealand is apparently under consideration, but um, you know what that means is completely unclear. 
Um, and uh, New Zealand, as we know, has had a standing offer of resettlement of people from offshore, from Nauru and, and PNG, for years. Um, and uh, and you know, it's been it's been an option for years from Australia. And Australia talking about the deterrence agenda has refused. It really uh, underpinned by the, you know the, this extreme form of deterrence to go there. And now there are soundings that it's not completely out of the question, but. You know, um, but but you know, it, it's remained this indefinite emergency for people stuck offshore. So it's very unclear what is what it's going to take to get that option. Um, you know, enlivened actions really. You know, yeah. And um, it's um, look, and beyond that, what are the other options? Um, and you know, the other options just very quickly. Uh, there are other countries around the world that have been. Um, in small numbers, um, options for people to be resettled to. And um, one of them is Canada. Um, so Canada has been an option, as you're probably aware. Um, there have been a small amount of other you know, resettlement countries, European resettlement countries, um, you know, whether there's a family link or something like that. But the options are extremely limited. And, um, and the other thing is that, of course, Australia, just it's worth remembering that Australia continues to take the position that people that were evacuated... Um, which is, by the way, over 1,200 people have been evacuated to Australia, but they um, will not be allowed to stay. But the question is, well, where, where would they go? Yeah, so it's, it's the, always... The policies... Yeah, yeah. There's always so much to unpack with you and always, you know, so much going on um, in this space. And, you know, we love having you on Triple R throughout the year. This is our last show for the year, but it's always great to have your insights on the show. And hopefully you get a little bit of a, a break over summer and um, would love to catch up with you again early in the new year and, yeah. and see where things sit then. Look, look, it's great to be back. And can I just say in final, the final point is um, there's always hope in these things. And um, can I just say one thing, you know, about for every one of us, um, you know, who care about these matters deeply, and I know many, many listeners do, are very engaged that, you know, advocacy campaigns um, are tremendously important, and there's one called a time for, uh, time for a home at the moment, time for a home, which is um, w- worth looking, looking at. Um, look, the other thing that I do want to just mention is that ultimately real and enduring change is so often achieved directly um, through helping individuals, helping um, and uh, lending a hand, lending an ear, um, and in doing so, um, as a consequence, helping their families, communities, our wider community. So, I think that uh, you know, you know, whether it be through volunteering or you know, applying your skills or experience, um, history shows that, um, as we know, that progress and change are not supernatural forces. You know that uh, what they're determined by individual will and political will, and um, so. We, we, we can together affect change. Absolutely, and, um, think, yeah. No, and, uh, but it starts with doing something. It, it does indeed, and it's a great sentiment to end on. Thanks so much, David, and um, take care, and we'll catch you again soon. Thanks. Thanks to both of you. Yeah, Have a thanks. good break. You too. Thanks, David. And um, if you missed the, the name of the campaign David just mentioned, it's called Time for a Home. It was launched last month and involves a coalition of 60 organisations. And um, yeah, you can find out more online if you want to chase up. Just uh, do what I just did and Google our Time for a Home campaign. Triple R. And for the fourth year in a row, 
We've invited Tony Wilson onto this program to hand out one of the world's most prestigious awards for speeches. The awards are called the Speak Olies, uh, named after the speakola.com online library of speeches that Tony has been amassing for the past four or so years. And um, I guess we should set the scene of how this is being done this year. Um, I'm in Studio 3, Dylan's in Studio 2, Tony Wilson is on the phone and I guess, Tony, this isn't the... first um, kind of award ceremony to be done without a live studio audience. We set the scene over the past three years and everybody else kind of started doing it this year like us. Absolutely. And Kanye, we, we have um, set up red carpets for each of us. We each had our own red carpet. Me into my house, you into Studio 3, Dylan into Studio 2. <laughs> an excess of red carpet. And, and you say this is one of the most prestigious speaking awards in the world it's the only and it's the best it's the only the best the most prestigious you can't win any other award for a speech other than a speak only this is it amazing i I didn't know that i didn't do my homework i didn't realize that we were the one and only so yep well there is a site american rhetoric but they haven't got around to handing out awards so i'm it (laughs) what do the awards look like tony they're a massive microphone. Um, they're a JPEG, and I, um, yes. if, they, if they want them to be emailed to them, the winners, I'm very happy to do that. But basically, they get stuck on my website as a JPEG. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> so we should talk about how this is going to happen this year. So we're going to kind of prompt you. You've, you have shared us, like we've already opened all the envelopes. We know who the winners are at this end. Yeah, but we're going yeah, to sort of right. prompt you as we go. And um, there are a kind of whole range of different awards being handed out and we're going to sort of culminate in in speech of the year so that's kind of what we're we're building towards um but i should say but before we kind of get into the first one like speakola.com um you don't just celebrate the speeches of celebrities there's a whole bunch of stuff on there isn't there like there's you know it's wedding speeches there's speeches to graduation classes there's a whole bunch on there Absolutely. So, yeah, the idea was that not to just to make it a thing where I have a dream goes up and you know the very most famous Oprah commencements or something go up. It's meant it's meant to be that if you do your own twenty uh, first speech or fortieth speech or eulogy to your mum or dad, you know, celebrating anything that's kind of words put together with care and love, and you know, it's actually been probably the most satisfying part of the site has been having people send in their eulogies to me, and and um, and we put those together, and people can visit and revisit them. So I haven't actually made an award for the punter speech this year. I have done that in some other years. But um, I've received less of them. I think the lack of public um, events this year has meant that there's been less speeches being given at, at birthdays and eulogies and, and people maybe are less satisfied with their speeches if you're giving them in, you know, on an online Zoom capacity. Yeah, and I mean, what I guess more broadly, what's it been like amassing speeches over the past year? I mean, there's been a you know, global pandemic, there's been a US election, a lot going on. Have you found it sort of relatively easy to, to find um, speeches worthy of, of putting on Speakola? Oh, well, there's probably, as I said, I feel like there's been less, but there's been some really big topics. So mm. when people have na- nailed it, um, it's, it's, they stand out. It's like they're often in that less atmospheric, um, it's less of a, of a 
of a kind of, a, of that crowd reaction that gives a speech its magic sometimes, you know. Um, you know, the I Have a Dream speech is not the same sort of speech if he's speaking alone into a Zoom camera. So I think you, you kind of miss the, the magic, but the topic of COVID itself is, is an amazing topic to talk about. And so, you know, we've... We've got a um, we've got a category that we're going to was the COVID speech of the year. Um, but do you want to get underway? Is that the, let's get is that underway. Let's let's do it. Yeah. So shall we start with with uh, here at home Australian political speech of the year? Then we'll get to COVID later. But um, but I guess what were the the speeches you looked at um, when awarding the the award for the best um, Australian political speech? Well, I did. It was pretty thin on the ground. <laughs> it was, it was um, I mean, the ones I did. I think I put up Scott Morrison earlier in the year as he outlined his um, COVID plan. But to some extent, I felt like that was a um, a failed speech. It was very high on detail and not um, and not what I would regard as a classic. Um, and then there were a couple of bushfire speeches. Uh, but the one I ended up going with, uh, you know, I thought it was easily the best speech of the year, and it was the one that Jackie Lambie delivered on university fees. She's um, done a couple of speeches that I've put up on Speakola. When I first encountered Jackie Lambie, I think it was, you know, that she was regarded as an anti-Muslim voice, and she was, you know, the redneck Tasmanian, and there was a sense that, um, you know, she's going to be holding the balance of power, and, oh, this is this... Um, terrible woman who's going to destroy the fabric of the country and turn us into a xenophobic place or even more so. Um, but, you know, over the last couple of years, she's given some speeches. Her, her ability to capture the economic divides in Australia, I don't think there's any parliamentarian who's going close to her. So she's done one 18 months ago that was incredible about being a welfare recipient and she gave this brilliant speech on what was going to happen if the government gutted welfare. And then this year she gave a speech about university fees and what happens if hex is raised to an extent where it's completely prohibitive to people who are from more disadvantaged circumstances. And I just thought it was a... She manages to intertwine the personal with the political as it should always be and um, she manages to to do emotion better than most. Yeah, let's just hear a short excerpt from that speech. I can live with the way I'm voting. I'll hold my head up high, and if I lose votes for it, I'll lose them with pride. If I lose my seat, I'll lose, I'll lose it with pride. I didn't get into politics to dim the futures of the people or our kids. I'm here to help. And if the price of staying in politics is betraying the people I'm here for, I'll leave with grace. My future isn't worth more than theirs. My goals, my hopes and dreams aren't more important than our kids. I'm here for them. We're all supposed to be here for them. We're supposed to be here so they have a decent future and we lay there in front of them. This will become law and I'll go back to them and say, hey guys, I tried. I really tried. I did what I could, but I fell short. I'll say to them, if I had a degree, Maybe I may have won the day. Maybe that would have made me a little bit smarter on my feet. Who knows? And I'll say that if you're sick of people who've never known the kind of life that I've seen or they've seen deciding on what's, what's on the menu for people like you, beat them at their own game. If the tools it takes to win are only available to the well-off, they'll keep winning and we'll keep losing. And the divide between the richer and poor... We'll keep getting greater. 
That's yep. where this country is going. That's a bit, isn't it? Yeah. That, that's the one that hit me as well. It's just, it's amazing. There's a bit where she says, uni was for other people, other people who don't live in public housing with dads who don't drive trucks. If you don't know anyone who went to uni, people ask you what you want to be when you grow up and you don't know how many possible answers there are. You choose what you see because it's what you know. It's just a, it's, it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant speech. It was actually hard to decide on which part of that speech to play as well, which I think, you know, is a sign of a really great speech. There's a lot in there that does kind of, you know, really kind of hit you in the guts and make you sit up and, and pay attention. And it's good as well that, um, you know, Jackie's savvy social media advisor has added some music to that to say, give it I additional... Don't, I, don't, I, don't think that, I don't think that music was playing in the Senate I don't when that was it playing was. on news radio. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was. Uh, they had a little um, boombox in the corner. They said, "Some really knock them over." Yeah, yeah. sure. That was perfectly I mean, kind of mood appropriate, wasn't it? Mm. Um, you know, it's great to see more women in politics, and I think that um, that our um, COVID speech of the year is also um, de- delivered by a female, really a, a woman um, politician who's in ascendance at the moment, is really telling. Are you are you thinking, Tony? You know, are we getting more women in politics speeches onto the Speakola website? Well, uh, yeah, definitely. I think sometimes um, that women who speak out on the inequality in society, often those speeches are very powerful because they're speaking to fundamental issues. Um, and, and so even though there still aren't enough women in, in politics and it remains a problem, the speeches that address the issue become noticeable. There was another one in America this year by um, AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who spoke about the vitriol you know, abuse that was directed to her by a Republican member. And she talked about mm. how that abuse is something that women deal with all the time. And, and she's going to stand up to it now because women need to start standing up to it. And that speech is you know, a classic, I would say. It's a right up there in the speech of the year contention. Um, but the one that I gave to the COVID speech of the year is a previous winner, and she edged out the Queen. I don't know if you heard the Queen's COVID speech. That was I, a brilliant speech. Yeah, it was a beautiful and brilliant speech. It was, um, it was one where she referred back to a speech she gave at the height of the Blitz, in the, and just to be able to refer back to yeah, your speech incredible. I know. during the Blitz. <laughs> it was incredible. And this is beautiful language that the Queen had in, this, in her speech, but I, I thought the political moment and in some ways it's a reward for what New Zealand did as well because they recognised um, when the this was when they had three cases of community transition mm, transmission wow. Jacinda Ardern shut New Zealand down with stricter um, with stricter protocols than we had in Victoria until second lockdown and so basically she went wham and she did it while Scott Morrison gave this big waffly speech about hairdressers um, <laughs> What Jacinda Ardern burned it, but she sounded like a military leader. She said, this is the threat. This is what we're going to do. You're going to go inside. There's going to be no complaints. We're going to cop the economic turmoil. All the best. We're with you. We can do this. And it's a tough, it was tough and it was direct and it was so clear. And, and I thought, you know, it was, she won, she got an award last year for her very emotional speech in the aftermath of the bombings in Christchurch. But I just thought this was the clearest statement in the world of 
action in the face of threat. I'm going to play just a short bit at the very end of this one because you're right, there's there's a lot in there that's very, um, you know, very much kind of setting forth what's happening very clearly, very much kind of in control of, of what's happening and, and very assertive. But there's a, a part at the very end that I feel like I didn't hear too many or, or really any other politicians speaking about how people, you know, might might react kind of socially and in terms of kind of looking out for each other and that sort of thing, which I think was quite poignant as well. So I'll play just the very end of the speech that touches on that. We are in this together. I'm in no doubt that the measures I've announced today will cause unprecedented economic and social disruption, but they are necessary. I have one final message. Be kind. I know people will want to act as enforcers. And I understand that people are afraid and they are anxious. But we, we will play the role of enforcer. What we need from you, our community, is you to support others. Go home tonight and check on your neighbours. Start a phone tree with your street. Plan how you'll keep in touch with one another. We will get through this together, but only if we stick together. So please be strong and be kind. I'm now going to hand over to the Minister of Finance to set out the additional... Yeah, I guess I just wanted to play that part because I don't think it was I heard anybody else who saw into the future how there would be this, you know, quite intense and, you know, understandable in in a lot of ways moralising that that went along with lockdowns and mask wearing and all that sort of thing because, you know, people are losing it. People are really struggling and the fact that she sort of anticipated that happening and almost primed people to be able to better deal with that, I think, was, um, was really interesting. Oh, it was great, wasn't it? And, and you know, it's, she, she has the knack of empathy. I put her up before with speaking to teachers who are protesting outside Parliament, and she just has the ability to stand in other people's shoes, which is what you want from a politician. She has clear and concise language. She speaks beautifully. She writes beautifully, or as speechwriters do. And so, yeah, for two years in a row, she's kind of stood up as a as a model leader to some extent, I think. And, um, you know, and I, I think Daniel Andrews did really well, but there was the weight of speeches in the end from him. You go, so which one was <laughs> Yeah, true. He, the I best? mean, he was there. You know, which one of the 110 of them did you like best? And I, I, I quite liked him announcing lockdown too. I thought that was my favourite one from him. I hadn't put it up yet. Right, so you're saying um, he made it hard for himself to win a speak holy because he just was out there far too much. <laughs> <laughs> Overexposed. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it. Shut up. <laughs> constant barrage. <laughs> giving his own pack on the page. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, can't can't fault that one. Um, Jacinda Ardern, maybe the first person to um, win a double speak holy. Um, and um, the speak holy she is. I'll send her a two JPEGs this week so. just to wake her up to the fact. <laughs> and if you've just tuned in, we're in, in the midst of the um, fourth annual speak holy awards. Tony Wilson's with us, um, the awarder in chief. And um, well, I mean, another big theme from this year, um, you know, other than the pandemic um, and the US election, which will come to, but is Black Lives Matter, Tony? Oh, yeah, so there were some, so, so many good ones out of America on this in particular for Black Lives Matter. Um, there was the woman who gave the angry speech on the streets of New York about the looters. I don't know, did you check that one out? Yeah, it's amazing. All? Yep, Desiree Barnes. That, 
Desiree Barnes, who'd been, we found out later that she was a she was a staffer in the Obama White House. Wow. And, and it was almost as though Michelle or um, Barack was channeling through her veins because the fluency and, and the anger and the words coming to her on her feet. And I thought for the ad-lib speech of the year, I would actually give it to Desiree Barnes or the guy last week um, who gave a speech about the, this has to stop in the counting in Georgia. Um, he was talking about someone maybe being killed. He gave an angry speech with the invective that had been directed towards Georgia election officials. That was another brilliant speech as well. So they were my two favourites on the ad-lib front. But, but for Black Lives Matter... Um, there was a, a really good speech given by George Floyd's brother, Terence Floyd. He gave a, a kind of an impromptu speech to a megaphone on the corner at which um, George uh, was killed. Um, and that was, uh, you know, a very powerful speech, a very fluent speech. And again, it had the balance of we need to hold this back, you need to not get out of control, you need to hold the violence, but it also had the anger um, directed at what had happened and how there needed to be systemic change. So I loved that one. Um, I loved, uh, there was a really good uh, eulogy delivered for George Freud by um, the pastor, um, what's his name, Reverend Al. Sharpen gave a very good eulogy, one of the eulogies of the year. But I thought the one that I, I really liked for Black Lives Matter, I think we might play it later, we might not play it this second, but the, um, the there was a monologue on Q&A. It was just really yeah. great to have it brought home to Australia for us to, to think about what's gone on, in, in particular in deaths in custody and rates of incarceration and um, that sense that there is not equality before the law that exists for Indigenous Australians um, in terms of the way they're treated by, um, by law enforcement. So that was... Um, that, that was, I thought, in a really powerful moment by an actor... Main Wyatt, who um, was on Q&A one night, and rather than doing the nice tune at the end of Q&A, which has become a bit of a tradition, uh, it was Main Wyatt on the monologue. So, yeah, congratulations, Main. Again, I'm sure you're knocked over, but uh, Jay, come your way. <laughs> yeah, we will play that one in full at the end, because I think it needs to be listened to in full. It's hard just to take out kind of, you know, 30 seconds to a minute of that one for it to fully resonate. So we will play that one at the very end. But um, but that's bringing us up to really the, the interesting part of um, the Speak Holies for 2020, Tony, and that is the Speech of the Year. What were some of the top contenders in that category? Oh, speech of the Year. So I mentioned AOC and her speech um, uh, responding to the abuse that she received from a Republican senator, I think it was, or he might have been a member of Congress. It was um, a very fluent defence of women who are abused or uh, the recipients of, you know, being called, a, I think she was called an effing bitch, might have been the expression he used. And that was a really great speech about the violence in language and in behaviour. Um, I also loved <laughs> a sporting uh, speech by um, uh, the, the Welcome to Country that was given before the Indigenous game up in Darwin this year. It was one of the speeches of the year by a guy called Richard Fajo. Um, it was right up there, the speech of the year. But I really did have to look to the election because the US election dominated everything. And it felt as though there was this uh, huge um, event on the horizon. As, and the Americans do speaking. I told you, we were talking about this just before, but they kind of do it 
with um, more uh, flair and, and fancier words and more occasion. You just can't imagine some of the words that come out of American politicians' mouths ever coming out of a mouth in Australia. Um, and so, so sort of those great traditions of oratory are alive there. You know, I think it's they've had the Lincolns and they've had the FDRs and they've had even, you know, Obama and Clinton and, and all these people just are such wordsmiths. And Trump, of course. Tradition of <laughs> yeah, what's that? A Trump as well, add him to the list of great... Well, no, it's <laughs> a relief to get him off. You know, I've put up a couple of Trumps over the years because, even, uh, yeah. Even, yeah. even high school students in the States, I mean, um, you know, we... we um, gave out a speak holy, was it the year before last? Yeah, to high school students. After the Sandy Hook massacre, mm. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they were incredible, weren't they, those um, kids um, speaking in Florida? Yeah, it was after, I think it was actually after the Parkland Oh, you might be right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we call BS one of the most um, powerful speeches ever on gun control by Emma Gonzalez. That one of speak holy, I think, a year or two ago. But the, um, the ones that I thought were in contention this year were Kamala Harris for her election night speech, um, her, sorry, her victory speech on a couple of days after the election. That was a really powerful speech and it had the, um, she managed to, a lot, a lot of great speeches intertwine the personal with the, the overall speech, uh, narrative that they're trying to drive forward. And so what I thought Kamala did really well was first of all to defer to Biden as the president, so she didn't kind of come in and steal his thunder. Then she went with a, uh, a, a beautiful personal anecdote about her mother um, and, and then talked about the position of women. And I think the blow that was the Hillary Clinton situation where, you know, she got beaten by that man and gave the speech, um, you know, she basically gave a, a beautiful speech herself as a confession speech four years ago about what she wanted young girls to take out of that election result. But it did feel like there was some redemption when Kamala Harris spoke um, on election night. So, so that was... That was one of the better ones. There was one by Cori Bush, who is a new congresswoman in the state of Missouri. I watched her and went, man, she's Obama. Like, she's got, she's just got it. And there's so many natural, so much natural fluency and the kind of speaking voice where your, your heart starts beating faster. And, you know, I thought that was one of the speeches of the year, her victory speech in Missouri. She's the black first black congresswoman in Missouri. There's another speech um, by Barack Obama, who's a regular on these stage. He gave a speech for John Lewis when he died. Um, his eulogy, I think, will go down as a classic eulogy for the man who was there on the bridge of Selma. Uh, but the one I ended up giving is it ends up being a predictable one. I think some people will go, no, 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 you haven't chosen that as a speech in a year. But this is the one that actually you know, it made me cry. Like I, I was watching the victory night and what Biden's speech, which combined those kind of, he would have spent, you know, 70% of his speech on um, on the sort of healing elements that have to go on in America, um, you know, and, and it felt as though I think there was a relief that went with having, you know, this sort of person, this president-elect suddenly not just speaking about himself, um, to hear him talk about what had to happen in America, um, and then he had, you know, a pretty good line, a sort of, a, you know, a, a JFK-ish sort of line about the... Now we have to lead by the power of our example, not just the 
the example about power or something. <laughs> How did everyone switch around? Um, and then he got on to the sort of stuff that Australians never do, which is the um, the, the the full arts and steady hands. Um, there was the, uh, the oh yeah, and now together on eagles' wings we embark <laughs> on the work that God and history has called upon us to do. God gets in with eagles' wings. And And God always does get a Guernsey in these um, these American speeches. We'll play just a short excerpt, which I'm sure many of you have heard um, as we watch the election results um, come in from the United States. Folks, the people of this nation have spoken. They've delivered us a clear victory, a convincing victory, a victory for we the people. We've won with the most votes ever cast from presidential ticket in the history of the nation, 74 million. What I must admit has surprised me tonight We're seeing all over this nation, all cities and all parts of the country, indeed across the world, an outpouring of joy, of hope, renewed faith, and tomorrow, bring a better day. And I'm humbled by the trust and confidence you've placed in me. I pledge to be a president and seeks not to divide. I mean, Biden's speeches have been the object of, of, you know, quite a lot of criticism as well, which, I mean, I didn't realise till well into the campaign that he had a speech impediment and had a stutter that he'd sort of struggled with through his whole life. But it's a, I mean, it is quite an incredible achievement, isn't it, for someone to rise to that level with, um, you know, a, a substantial um, challenge with public speaking. Absolutely, and so and, and when, um, when Trump was getting punches on the kind of senility front, whenever I watched him speak after I knew he had a speech impediment, I liked it, but it took me a while to know that. Um, I went, oh, that's not senility, as he sort of searches for that word. That's just a guy who's overcome a study. You've seen that in lots of things and people that you know that had stutters. Um, and, and it, but it was easier, I think, to paint him as on the on the principles of senility with um, with that with that stutter. Yeah, um, and that's it. That's a speak always for another year. That is it. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so there are so many good ones. If you go to this website, which is speakover.com, Chris McAvaney gave a great speech. There was a great speech by The Rock. In fact, if I had have had my entertainer or musician category this year, I might have gone with that one. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix was great at the Bastards and at the Academy Awards. There were so many good speeches this year, but they're the ones that we've highlighted for the biggest, the fourth ceremony. Um, and thank you so much for having me on. Great time. Thanks, thanks for coming back for the uh, fourth annual Speak Olies, uh, Tony. And um, yeah, I think wonderful speeches to to um, read through or listen to if you haven't listened to them all. And we'll sort of share those links on our various different platforms, or you can send, send, head to that website. That Tony um, mentioned speakola.com and I guess you'll like, I don't know, write some sort of a post and have them there or something, Tony? Yeah, you know, yeah. And with I'll the make JPEG? Yeah. And, and, and of course, it's only the 6th or 7th of December. So if I've just got it wrong uh, and you think, how could you not have put that in your list? Um, just send me an email at um, tony at tonywilson.com.au and I'll put up your favourite speech of the year. 
Fantastic. And um, I'm, I'm glad just even after the year that we've had that we can still award the Speak Holies and, um, yeah, keep the trend setting, doing it all <laughs> with three different yeah, red carpets. Back, and Back in studio next year, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. Look, we really hope that. And um, it's wonderful to speak with you. Enjoy the after party, Tony. No worries. Speak to you later, guys. <laughs> Cheers. See ya. See ya. And as promised, we will play that speech in full from Maine Wyatt. This a monologue he delivered on Q&A a few months back. I'm always going to be a black friend, aren't I? That's all anybody ever sees. I'm never just an actor. I'm always an Indigenous actor. Hey, I love rapping, but I don't hear old Joe Bloggs over here being called white Anglo-Saxon actor, blah blah I'm always in the black show, the black play. I'm always the angry one, the tracker, the drinker, the thief. But sometimes I just want to be seen for my talent, not my skin colour, not my race. I hate being a token, a box to tick, part of some diversity angle. Oh, well, what are you whinging for? You're not a real one anyway. You're only part. Well, what part then? My foot? My arm? My leg? You're either black or you're not. You want to do a DNA test? Come suck my blood. Ooh, how are we to move forward if we dwell on the past? That's your privilege. You get to ask that question. As we can dance and we're good at sport. You go to weddings, we go to funerals. No, 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 you're not your ancestors. It's not your fault you have white skin, but you do benefit from it. You can be okay. I have to be exceptional. I mess up, I'm done. There's no path back for me. There's no road to redemption. Being black and successful comes at a cost. You take a hit whether you like it or not. Because you want your blacks quiet and humble. You can't stand up, you have to sit down. Ask the brother boy Adam Goods. A kid says some racist shit, not ignorant, racist. Calling a black fella an ape, come on, man, we was flora and fauna before 1967. No, actually, we didn't even exist at all. But he got it. This was a kid. This was a learning moment. He taught that kid a lesson. But did they like that? A black man standing up for himself? Nah, they didn't like that. You shut up, boy. You stay in your lane. Anytime you touch a ball, we're going to boo your ass. So he showed him a scary black, throwing imaginary spears and shit. And did they like that? Oh, no, no, no. They didn't like that. Every arena, every stadium, they booed him. It's because the way the flog plays football. Bullshit. No one booed him the way they booed him until he stood up and said something about race. The second he stood up, everybody came out of the woodworks to give him shit. And what, he's supposed to sit there and take it? Well, I'll tell you right now, Adam Goods has taken it. His whole life he's taken it. I've taken it. No matter what, no matter how big, how small, I'll get some racist shit on a weekly basis and I'll take it. You know, it used to be that in your face, your bong, your black dog coon kind of shit. Gonna chase it down the ditch with my baseball bat, skinhead shit, when I was 14 years old. But nah, we come forward, we progressive, we're gonna give you that small, subtle shit. The shit that's always been there, but it's not that obvious in your face shit. It's that, oh, no, we can't be seen to be racist kind of shit. Security guard, follow me around the store, asking to search my bag. They're walking up to the counter first and being served second or third or last kind of shit. They're hailing down a cab and watching it slow down to look at my face and then drive off. More than once, more than twice, more than once, twice on any one occasion. Yeah, that shit I'll get weekly. Sometimes I'll get days in a row if I'm really lucky. And that's the kind of shit that I'm letting them think they're getting away with. Because to be honest, I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered teaching their ignorant asses on a daily basis. I don't have the energy or the enthusiasm. It's exhausting and I like living my life. But then on occasion, when you call me on a bad day where I don't feel like taking it, I'll give you that angry black you've been asking for and I'll tear you in you asshole. Not because of that one time, because of my whole life. At least Adam danced and they still pissed and moaned. But it's not about that one time, it's about all those times. And seeing us as animals and not as people, that shit needs to stop. Black deaths in custody, that shit needs to stop. I don't want to be what you want me to be. I want to be what I want to be. Never trade your authenticity for approval. Be crazy. Take a risk. Be different. Offend your family. Call them out. 
Silence is violence. Complacency is complicence. I don't want to be quiet. I don't want to be humble. I don't want to sit down. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.